0: Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the wretchedly pagan city of Ephesus, the capital city of Asia Minor. Paul wrote this while he was chained to a guard under house arrest in Rome. And he wrote it to lay a proper, solid doctrinal foundation for these believers so they could first know what they believed that would then enable them to live out those doctrines for the glory of God. We're now in the middle of the application section of this letter. So what then is the call for us now that we're saved? It's this, to please God with our lives and to use our gifts within the church. Why? So that we can all be growing and maturing in our faith and thus glorifying God with our lives in fuller measure. So as Paul said, put off the old man and put on the new man day by day by day. In other words, now that you're saved and now that you've been made new, and now that you have God's Spirit residing in you as your divine helper, and now that you have all these great means at your disposal, God's Word and prayer and other believers and so much more, The call is to now live like a Christian is called to live more and more because this is now who you are. (laughs) So, stop lying, Paul says. Tell the truth. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't steal. Work hard. Be generous to God and be generous to others. Guard your speech so that you edify and impart grace to people. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Don't grieve Him with sin. Put off bitterness and wrath and clamor and anger and evil speaking and malice, the things that mark the old way of life without Christ and put on kindness and tenderness and forgiveness, the things that mark the new life that glorifies God. See, this is who we now are, right? Children of the living God, and like father, like son or daughter. So, we love Him, right? Anybody? Right? We love Him. This God who saved us from wrath, when we least deserved it. And now, we earnestly desire to please Him in light of who He is and in light of what He's done. So, put off the old. Put on the new. Because this is who we now are. Paul continues to show us how we ought to live as those who have been forgiven by God. Let's look at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, the first thing to take note of as we look at this is the fact that we are forgiven dear children of God. And that is what motivates us. That's what catapults us forward as Christians. Paul starts off with the word therefore, and this connects us to what Paul has previously said. What's that? That we have been forgiven of all our sin by a holy God. Remember chapter 4, verse 32? be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And then he says the word, therefore. And so because of God's great forgiveness of us, we are then called to do what Paul says next. Hey, God's forgiveness of us is great motivation for obedience. I mean, forgiveness by God means everything. And without it, we're doomed for eternal wrath. So, yeah, this is important. David talks about the importance of forgiveness in Psalm chapter 32. The context of Psalm 32 is very important. The belief is that this Psalm was written not long after David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and you might remember that event, right? <laughs> that wretched event that's found in 2 Samuel 11:1 1 through 1225, and here's a brief summary of what happened. David went out on his roof, which was very common back then. He looked around, and in an adjacent house, he saw a woman bathing. David then sent and inquired about the woman. David then committed adultery with that woman. Bathsheba then became pregnant. And then, to make a long story short, David made sure that Bathsheba's husband was killed in battle so that no one would find out David's sin. And thus we see that this great man of God, David, right? The man after God's own heart, fell into horrible and wretched sin. Well, after nearly a year, you might remember that God sent Nathan, the prophet, to confront David, which then led to him confessing and repenting of his sin, which is a great thing. At once, David wrote Psalm 51 that expresses David's confession and his heartfelt repentance. In that psalm, David also promised that he would teach transgressors God's ways. And I believe that one of the ways that he did that was by writing Psalm 32. See, this is a way to not only warn people about the wretched danger of sin, every sin, all sin, but it's also a great reminder of the importance of God's forgiveness for those who genuinely seek it. You ever mess up big time? Good thing God's good at forgiveness, right? David begins Psalm 32 with these words. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Amen to that. <laughs> the word transgression literally means a going away from, a departure, a rebellion, or a defiance. So a transgression is a willful act of rebellion against the Lord. And here, David tells us that the blessed man is the one whose rebellion against God is forgiven. Literally, it's taken away, it, it's carried away, it's cast aside. That's a blessed man or a woman. David says it another way in verse 1 to drive his point home when he says, Blessed is he whose sin is covered. That word sin means to miss the mark, to miss the way, to, to go wrong and to go astray. That word is an archery term and it pictures a hunter with a bow and arrow aiming at his target, shooting that arrow and missing the mark. And this missing the mark is a good picture of what sin is, right? Sin misses the mark, God's mark, and it falls short of what holy God requires. And here, we find that the happy person, the truly blessed person, is the one who misses God's mark, and yet still has that sin covered up, hidden, and concealed by God, paid for in full, (laughs) David says it yet another way in verse 2, just to drive this important point home for us, when he says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. The word iniquity means to corrupt, to twist, to bend, to pervert, and to make crooked. That word shows us very clearly what sin does in your life. See, it defiles you, it corrupts you, it perverts you, and it ruins you. But once again, the blessed man is the one whose iniquity whose perversions that pit him against holy God are not imputed or credited to his spiritual account. See, spiritually speaking, you have an account before God, spiritually speaking, and you are eternally blessed if all your sin isn't credited to that spiritual account. Why? Because one little sin on that account will send you to hell. And so, you have, to have your sin not be put to your spiritual account, man, that means everything. And the happy person is the one whose iniquities are not imputed to him. And clearly the point is this, that forgiveness of sin means absolutely everything to sinners like us, amen? It means everything. It meant everything to David and it means everything to us. See, we need to remember that sin is utterly and entirely wretched we need to remember the utter sinfulness of sin we need to remember that sin destroys us it ruins us and it condemns all of us we need to remember that sin is indeed the deadly disease of the soul and all sin seeks to have you as its slave Sin is of the devil. Sin is rebellion against God. It's a work of darkness. It defiles you. It marks you. It brings death, eternal death, eternal separation from God, eternal wrath, and none of that is good. So, to be forgiven of that sin that condemns us oh, means everything. <laughs> the good news is that for everyone who believes, right? For everyone who casts themselves down at the feet of Christ and humbly surrenders to Him in repentant faith for everyone who pleads His mercy from the heart, forgiveness of all our sin that condemns us. And because of Jesus, God the Son, who left heaven, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in the believer's place as our substitute, and rose three days later, we who believe, we can be forgiven of all our sin. See, Jesus, God, the Son, was punished on the cross so we who believe could be forgiven and live. Jesus became our substitute for sin. As Christians, our sins were placed onto Jesus on the cross and God punished him so he wouldn't have to punish us. So he died so we who believe can live and be forgiven and go to heaven instead of hell. This is everything. This is the best news that there is. And now, as the forgiven of God, as a Christian, the call is to live like the forgiven of God. Doesn't that make sense? Right? Therefore, that's why Paul says it. But look, Paul takes it a step further when he says that we're not only the forgiven of God, but we as Christians are also the dear children of God. And that's true only for us in Christ. I mean, not every person is a dear child of God. See, this is a family term. This is a term that's reserved only for Christians. So that brings up two questions which we've looked at before, but that we should probably note again. First, does God love everyone? And then second, does God love everyone the same? Now, we know from Scripture that God is compassionate, kind, generous and good, even to the most stubborn of sinners, who can deny that those mercies flow out of God's boundless love. God's very nature is to love, and the reason our Lord commanded us to love our enemies is so that we may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous, so Jesus clearly characterizes His Father as one who loves even those who purposefully set themselves at enmity against Him. Yes, Psalm says that God is angry with the wicked all the day, but that anger doesn't negate the general love and goodness that He displays towards them. So yeah, God does have a general love for humanity. Theologians call it God's common grace. And that's seen in His generous acts of mercy, goodness, patience, and so on, even to those who hate Him. Think about it. God doesn't immediately punish people for their sin when He certainly could, and I think should, except for me. Don't do that to me, right? (laughs) God gives those who hate Him, those who hate Him, many undeserved joys in life, beautiful mountains, chocolate pie, friends and family, many blessings that every person experiences even those who hate God that's his general love that's his common grace on display this leads to a second question though does God love everyone the same answer no no he does not instead God clearly loves believers with a particular love with an infinite, agape, eternal, saving love that seeks us out and that keeps us in, which is different than the general love and goodness that God has for humanity. We should be able to get a grasp on this as we think about the love that we have for our own children. It's not the same love that we have for other children. No. The love we have for our children is a a family love. It's a different kind of love. And God's love for us as his dear children is like that. It's a covenant love. It's an eternal love. It's a saving love. So God's love is clearly different in the breadth and depth and manner of its expression towards us in particular as his children. See, we, the saved, are his beloved. We are his beloved, his chosen, his bride, his dear ones, who alone can go to him and cry out to him, Abba, Father. And there's a big difference there. The word used for love here is a Greek word, agape. Agape love is a specific love for Christians because it speaks of God's unconditional, sacrificial covenant love, family love. Talking about God's special love for you, his saved and dearly beloved child that he died for to redeem. What about this love? Well, it's a perfect love and it's perfect right now. He will never love you any more or any less than he does right now as his saved child. Because he loves you fully and he loves you perfectly right now. Your actions as a Christian don't affect God's love for you. Your actions can glorify him, honor him, be well-pleasing to him. Yes, they can. They can also grieve him and sadden him. But they won't affect his agape love for you. No. See, nothing we do or did had an influence on his love. Rather, the love of God is free, spontaneous, and uncost. The Bible is clear about that. The only reason why God loved any of us is found in his own sovereign will. And look, God didn't love us because we loved him. He loved us before we had a particle of love for him. Biblically, God loved His people before heaven and earth were called into existence, before the foundation of the world. And since God's love for me has had no beginning, it can therefore have no ending. His love is sovereign. His love is infinite. His love is without limit. His his love for us is beyond measure. It doesn't change. It's gracious and it's giving. And get this, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.39. Try to think about the love that God has for you. You can't fathom it. It's real and it's intense. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Think about that. God's love was fixed upon us and it flowed out to us, his people, freely. Why? Well, he alone knows, but it's great beyond expression or conception. Look, his love didn't depend on What we are, it flows from His own heart. And it isn't love of something good in us. It's because of everything good in Him. He loved us before time began. We're experiencing that love in intense measure right now. And that love will be seen and felt for all eternity in abounding measure. See, once fixed, it's fixed forever. It's incredible. How much does He love you, His child? Well, He gave His Son for you. We're going to look at that in a second. How about that? He poured out His divine wrath against your sin onto the Son so that He could be with you. Talk about love. How could a love like that not win us over? (laughs) How could a love like that not flow out of us, back to Him, in tangible and passionate ways? And that's the point that Paul is making here. That as dear children of God, we now live up to who we are, compelled by intense love to do so. One said... If I realize that God loves me, loves me infinitely, loves me eternally, then I can do anything for God. And I can suffer anything from the hand of God. Why? Because we know that a God who loves us this much, He can be trusted, even when things are really, really hard. This love gives us perspective. This love raises us above our trials this love comforts us in our lonely hours and in our seasons of sickness and sorrow this love inspires us to be courageous and and bold and godly because a god like this is worthy of all our passionate love in return anybody right so show it that's what that's what paul's saying show it okay how paul tells us look what he says that in light of the fact that we Christians are the forgiven, dear children, beloved children of the Lord God Almighty, which is incredible, what are we called to do? This. Be imitators of God. Oh, is that all? Be imitators of God. But this is our call, this is our aim, our goal, to be more and more like Him. And while we know that we won't arrive at that goal until glory, this is our great aim more and more and more. The word imitators means one who follows. The Greek term is Mimetes, from which we get the English words mime, which refer to someone who imitates another person. Pantomime, and mimeograph, which is a machine that makes copies from a stencil. So, the word means to copy, to imitate, and to pattern our life after. Who? God. God, specifically Jesus. God the Son. See, He's our example that we are called to copy our lives after. Yes, he's many other things, right? He's our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our sacrifice and our substitute and so much more. But he's also our perfect example to pattern our lives after as his dearly beloved children. So look at Christ and then look at yourself and compare. (laughs) When you do that, you will then see what you need to continue to be putting on and what you need to continue to be putting off for the glory of God. And sadly, some people never do this. They never do this. So they remain stagnant and they remain mediocre and they never really grow in their godliness, which is incredibly sad and pathetic for those of us who love the Lord. Others do that, but they only do it partly, where they willingly ignore areas of their life that aren't matching up more and more with the pattern of Christ. So they have glaring holes in their spiritual development, which not only gives Christ a bad name, but it makes them look like hypocrites. It's not good. No, our call is to imitate God and to passionately pursue this high and holy calling based on our love for Him who saved us. Please, please don't grow weary in this. Please don't settle for mediocrity here. Never stop in this great pursuit. Always keep moving forward in this because it has eternal value and it greatly pleases and glorifies the God whom you love. Imitate God. How you doing? (laughs) Charles Spurgeon said, a Christian should be a striking likeness of Jesus Christ. We should be pictures of Christ. Oh, my brethren, there's nothing that can so advantage you. Nothing can so prosper you, so assist you, so make you walk toward heaven rapidly. So keep your head upwards towards the sky and your eyes radiant with glory like the imitation of Jesus Christ. And he's absolutely right. So don't look at others. Don't look at others. No, look to Christ and keep pursuing. That's the call. Anybody overwhelmed? Besides me? Right? Right? good, then we are comparing ourselves to Christ correctly because every one of us has a long way to go. May this overwhelming feeling, though, cause us not to sink in despair, no, but may it propel us forward day by day, intent to take spiritual ground for the glory of God and to never, ever, ever quit in this grand pursuit. That was Paul's attitude, wasn't it? He said, one thing I do, One thing I do, forget what is behind and press on toward that which is ahead, eternal glory. But until eternal glory, Paul's great aim was to be more like Christ, more and more and more. So that's what Paul pursued day by day, pleasing him, glorifying him, being like him, finishing strong, finishing well, battling sin, pursuing Christ. And he's a great example for us as forgiven, dear children of God. So be imitators of God. And never, ever stop in that pursuit. Okay, you say, how specifically? What's one word that can kind of summarize how we can tangibly do this? Anybody know? Come on, you know. Love, right? Love, it's love. Walk in love following the example of Christ. Walk speaks of your daily life, how you regulate and conduct your daily life. How? How are you called to walk? In love. The word love here, again, is a Greek word agape. And again, it speaks of a distinctly Christian love, the unconditional, sacrificial love that God is, the love that's a fruit of His indwelling Spirit. So Paul's calling not for a natural walk, but for a supernatural walk that's enabled by the power of the Spirit of God who lives in every Christian. Agape. Agape. Love, and that's what should regulate our lives as believers who want to follow the example of Christ and thus please Him with our lives to the utmost. Paul loves this word "walk." He uses it many times in Ephesians. It's a word that he's used to describe the behavior both of those before they were saved and after. In Ephesians two one, he said, "You were dead in your trans- g- trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked or lived." In two ten. For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In 4.1 he said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, with, with which you have been called. In 4.17 he said, this I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. In five eighty he says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then in 5.15, he writes, Therefore, be careful how you walk or live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So clearly this term walk describes a way of life, how you conduct yourself, how you live your life day by day. Non-Christians walk one way, but Christians walk another way. And here, the call for us in Christ is to be like Him and therefore to walk in love. So the question is Does this describe you today? Godly love, biblical love. The greatest commandments are to love God and to love others. And they will know we are Christians by our love. And the question is Do they? See, as his dear children who are loved so greatly by him, our call is to love others in the same manner. I mean, having received so much undeserved love ourselves, how could we hold it in and refuse to give it out to those around us? Now remember, agape love is unique only for true Christians because agape love comes from God himself to us, his children. Non-Christians don't love like this as their walk because they can't love like this as their walk because this kind of love is contrary to their nature. Romans 5.5 says, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So only true Christians can love with true agape love because God gives that agape love to us, his children. And the call is for us to walk in it as the practice and atmosphere in which we live. Christians are those who practice agape love in their lives day by day by day. What exactly is agape love? Agape love is a love of choice. Agape love chooses to love even that which is undeserving of love. Agape love has to do with the mind. See, it's not simply an emotion that rises up in our hearts. It's a a principle by which we deliberately live. Agape love is a love that loves without changing. It's a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It's a love that can give to the unlovable and to the unappealing because it comes to us from God. It's a divine love, a selfless love, a love that seeks the best for the recipient because of God's love in us and flowing out from us. What does it look like? Well, obviously it looks like Christ, right? Selfless, sacrificial kind, other-focused, gentle, humble, caring, forgiving. It's very practical. How about this? Not gossiping about others, forgiving those who have wronged you, not striking back or retaliating when hurt, turning the other cheek, serving, helping, putting others ahead of yourself, and so on. Again, it's all very practical. It asks How can I show you the love of Jesus clearly today? How can I serve you in Christian love tangibly? First Corinthians 13 tells us what agape love looks like. It describes a Christian who's patient and kind toward others. Does it describe you? He won't be envious and he won't be all about self. Is that true of you? He won't be prideful or behave rudely. He won't seek um, his own wants and desires. He won't be easily provoked, but... He will be gracious and give people the benefit of the doubt. Does that describe you? He won't rejoice in iniquity, but he will rejoice in the truth. He will bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, because he gets it. Because he's saved and he loves the Lord first and foremost, because he wants to glorify his good God and he wants to follow the example of Christ who loved. Does that describe you? Here's another question. What are you known by? Does godly love mark your walk? Hey, some Christians are known for their meanness. Some Christians are known for their anger. Some Christians are known for their brashness. Some Christians are known for their coldness. Some Christians are known for their defensiveness. We're called to be known for our Christ-like love. Other words that go along with this are kindness, tenderness, graciousness, mercy, Gentleness, forgiveness, warmth, compassion, selflessness, service, and so on. What about you? Paul goes on to show us what this love tangibly looks like. First, he makes it clear that Christ loved us, right? We know that. We know that. We've already talked about that. Christ loved us. A good picture of his love for us is that of a shepherd. In Psalm 23, David wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, meaning that I have everything I need in him. I don't need anything else. That I shall want nothing if I have him as my shepherd. See, the shepherd is a favorite scriptural picture of the divine love and care of the Lord for us. It's seen in the Old Testament. It's also seen in the New, when our gracious Lord says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, John 10, 11. That's Jesus to us. See, the shepherd lives with his sheep. If they're out in a storm, he's with them. If they're exposed to danger, so is he. Like that, Jesus is intimately united to us, his sheep. The shepherd also knows his sheep. Any good shepherd actually had a name for each one of his sheep, and he called them all by name. Just so Christ knows each one of us, and he has intimate, personal knowledge of us. He knows the best of us, and he knows the worst of us. He knows our faults, our sins, and our wanderings. But even so, knowing us as we are, look, he still loves us and he never wearies of us. Also, any good shepherd is gentle with his sheep. He doesn't drive them, but he goes before them and he leads them. When they need to rest on the way, he makes them lie down. But not only that, he chooses green pastures for them, not the dusty, dry road he's especially kind to the lambs and he gathers them up in his arms and he carries them in his bosom all this is a wonderful picture of the gentleness of our good shepherd in his care for us his sheep he's thoughtful toward the weak whatever the need is there's something in the heart of christ which meets that need as isaiah forty eleven says he will feed his flock like a shepherd he will carry the lambs in his arms holding them close to his heart He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. And that's Christ, our good shepherd, for us. Look, any good shepherd would also defend his flock from danger. Often he had to risk his own safety and even his own life in protecting his sheep. Well, guess what? The good shepherd gives his life for us, his sheep, for you and for me. See, all of Christ's sheep are absolutely safe in His keeping. He will guard us. He will protect us. He will care for us. He will lay down His life for us. He has. He will give us exactly what we need because He loves us all so very much. And look, He will bring all of His sheep safely home. And that is a guarantee. He loves us. He loves us. He loves you. He loves you as child more than you could ever think, or imagine. How much does He love us? Well, He gave Himself for us. Think about that. God gave Himself for us. Is that sinking in a little bit? (laughs) Who are we? And yet He still gave Himself for us. (laughs) In Romans 5, 7, Paul writes these words, Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Question, how many people are you willing to die for? A few, right? There's a few. I mean, your parents, your children, your husband or wife, a good friend. I mean, there's a few, right? Come on, there should be. (laughs) This is telling us that all of us would die for a few other people, but even that's pretty rare. But Romans 5, 7 is telling us that God's love isn't like that. And as great as it is when a person will die for another person, God's love is much greater, and God went far beyond what any of us would have ever done. I mean, we would never think of doing what God did for us. The next verse says this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So look, not only did he die for us, but he died for us. He gave himself for us when we were his enemies. So Christ didn't die for his friends He died for his enemies. He died for those who crucified him. He died for those who hated him. He died for those who rejected him. He died for those who cheered as the nails were driven into his hands. He didn't die for good people. He died for bad people. He didn't die for saints. He died for sinners. He didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. He didn't die for people who loved him. He died for people who hated him. That's love. He gave himself for us, his enemies, to save us. For us. And it was costly, it was brutal, it was painful, it was bloody, it was wretched, it was excruciating, but he still did it for us, for you. For you. So we could be saved for all eternity. Talk about love. Sometimes in this ugly world, people say, Where's the love of God? We see so much killing, so much heartache, so much tragedy, so much pain, so much anger. Where's the love of God? Here's the love of God. Look at the cross. Gaze upon the bleeding form of the Son of God dying, facing the Father's divine wrath for us. There you see the love of God on full display. He died when we were His enemies to save us from hell. His children from hell. That's love. We're called to love like that. We're called to follow that example. So, how about this? Stop being all about you. Stop focusing so much on you. Jesus gave himself for you. Can't you serve his people? Jesus gave himself for you. Can't you forgive that person? Jesus gave himself for you. Can't you turn the other cheek? Jesus gave himself for you. Can't you show compassion on that needy soul right next to you? Jesus gave himself for you. Can't you sacrifice in order to show someone who desperately needs it the love of Christ? See? It's about him. And then others. And then you're away at the bottom. And Christians are good with that because we love him so very much. We just want to please him, right? Right? See, we're called to walk in love by following the example of Christ who gave himself for us painfully and brutally. So give yourself to him and give yourself to others. That's the way of godly love. Third, he was a sweet-smelling offering and sacrifice to God, verse 2. This takes us back to the Old Testament when animals were sacrificed to God on altars. In the Old Testament, there were two types of sacrifices. The first dealt with sin and the broken fellowship that resulted from that sin. There, the sacrificial blood of that animal was a picture of the bridging of the gap between the giver of the offering and God. See, the sacrifice pictured the price for sin, which is death. Thus, the animal dying and becoming uh, being offered up as a sacrifice in your place. And when that sacrifice was done in faith, it allowed your sin to be placed on that animal that died temporarily, which was then, later on, transferred to Christ, who alone can pay the deadly wages of sin once and for all on the cross. See, you sin, the result is death, eternal separation from God. But here in the Old Testament... God made a way for an animal to be sacrificed in your place to cover your sin. That sin was then rolled forward and placed onto Christ on the cross, who alone could and did, once and for all, truly pay the full wages of sin, every believer's sin. The second type of sacrifice was presented to God as an act of worship. Your sins have been covered, your heart is right, and you're full of faith, thanksgiving, and praise to God. And the offering that you made to God reflected that reality. And just as the aroma of an animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, when done in faith and when done in love, would go up to God and be well-pleasing to Him, so too did Christ's offering of Himself on the cross as our sacrifice for sin go up to the Father and please Him like a sweet-smelling aroma. See, the whole act of Christ... That smelled good to God. In other words, it pleased God. It was sweet to his nostrils. Look, Christ obeyed perfectly. Christ gave himself for us. Christ giving of himself as our sacrifice and offering brings peace between us and God at a very high cost. And it all pleased the Father. Now, there's so much in this image that's pleasant, but it also reminds us that the fragrance from an altar doesn't come without the giving of self as seen in an offering, and also the dying of another as seen in a sacrifice. As one said, there's no life of love without a degree of giving and dying. All who would be like Jesus must offer and sacrifice themselves. In a world full of people caught up in sinful practices and attitudes, living like Jesus will involve both the giving of ourselves and the dying of self. And just as Jesus showed his love, by being a sweet-smelling offering and sacrifice to God, that is our call as Christians as well. As Paul said in Romans 12:1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's the same idea. That in light of everything that God has done for you, in light of all the incredible mercies that God has given to you, you're called to be a living sacrifice for Him. What does that mean, uh, to be a living sacrifice? Think of it like this. Before Jesus rescued you, Ephesians tells us you were dead in sin, right? But then, our great, merciful God rescued you and delivered you from all your sin, and he made you spiritually alive when there was absolutely nothing you could do about that on your own. No, you were dead. But look, now that you've been made alive spiritually and you've been saved, guess what? You're now called to be dead. So before Christ saved you, you were dead spiritually, but you were alive to everything else. But now that you're in Christ and have been saved, you've been made alive spiritually, but now you're called to be dead to everything else save Jesus. That's what a living sacrifice is, a dead person walking. Okay, what does that mean? It means that we live our lives in a constant, as a constant, continual sacrifice and offering to God. We're His. His alone. It means that He comes first, that We belong to God and everything else just fades away. That we're alive to God and dead to everything else. That we're to offer this body up to the Lord and to never ask for it back again. It's His. We're His. And in love, we live for Him alone. That smells sweet to God. Jesus says it another way for us in Mark 8.34. If anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does that mean? Same thing. So first, you must deny yourself. The word deny means to refuse, to disown, to disregard, and to renounce. Who do you renounce? Who do you disregard? Who do you disown? Yourself. It means to say no to yourself. It means that you refuse to associate with yourself. It means you turn your back on yourself because it's no longer about you, not me. It's about who? It's about him. Okay, but what about taking up your cross? What does that mean? Well, when Jesus took up his cross, what came next? his death. See, at that time, a cross was an instrument of execution. It was a symbol of torture and death that awaited all who opposed Roman authority. So when Jesus mentioned taking up your cross, the disciples immediately would have pictured a poor condemned criminal walking along the road, carrying the instrument of his death on his own back. See, a man who took up his cross began his death march, carrying the beam that he would hang and die on. And so when Jesus says to come after me, you got to take up your cross, it meant that you're willing to pay any price for the sake of Christ and you're willing to do that on a daily basis. It meant a willingness to endure shame, embarrassment, ridicule, reproach, mockery, rejection, persecution, and even death for his sake, because he's worthy. It meant that you're willing to daily start on a death march for the cause of Christ if it came down to it. It meant that you would be willing to daily suffer the pains and the reproaches of a condemned criminal if need be. And here Jesus is saying very clearly, I want you to deny yourself and I want you to die every day as a true follower of mine and just live for me. And it shows us the absolute priority that Christ must have in our lives over and above anything and everything else. To Peter, taking up his cross meant daily living for Jesus in a world that opposed them. It led to humiliation, beating, hatred, and ultimately an upside-down death on a cross. To Paul, it meant daily living for Jesus in the midst of very strong opposition. And men being beaten Stoned, shipwrecked, going hungry, being thrown into prison, intense pressure and stress and pain, and it too ultimately meant death for him. Paul said himself, I die daily. And there he's simply saying, every single day, I anticipate the possibility of my death so that in my my mind, I'm dying every day. But guess what? Jesus is worth it. Christ is worth all of it, every bit of it. And just as Jesus was a sweet-smelling offering and sacrifice when he gave himself for us and died on that cross, we who love him are called to be like him and to love like that day by day by day. First, we're to love God so that our lives are his. He comes first. All else is meaningless. and, And he is our all in all. And our aim is to please him, even if it means dying for him, because we love him. But look, because we love him so much, we also let his love flow through us to others, serving, helping, showing mercy and grace to them, forgiving them, showing the world around us what Christ's love is like, what Christ himself is like. And then, as we live more and more like this, it all goes up to God. And like a sweet-smelling aroma, it pleases him. And what could be better than that? We're not there yet. (laughs) This is our aim, though. This is our grand pursuit. You say, John, I'm so far from having this perspective. I don't deny myself like I ought. I I don't take up my cross daily and live for the Lord like I should. I I don't come close. I want to, but I I don't. I'm not there. Well, that's why Paul writes these words to the Ephesians. And that's why I'm preaching on this today today to remind myself and the rest of us of these great truths because we're forgetful. Here's the key, though, if you've lost some perspective. Focus on the fact that you are a forgiven dear child of God. Focus on that. Focus on what he did to save you from eternity in hell. Focus on how much he loves you. Because when you really do that, this then won't seem like a duty to you. No, no, no. Love will then compel you to glorify and honor a God like this. Anything for Him, right? Anything for a God like this, for a God who loves and forgives someone like me, anything for Him, that's the idea. And it pleases Him. Think of that. You can please Him. You can be like Jesus and be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. You what a thought. That's great incentive to imitate God and to follow the example of Christ by walking in love. Great, great incentive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, so much for this application section of Ephesians and for the challenge. But I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't see this as a, 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 a something that we can't achieve, but that we would make this our great pursuit day by day by day because we love you so much and this glorifies you. So, Lord, may we look at you and contemplate your great forgiveness and love for us when we least deserved it, and may love then compel us to be like you and to love like you and to live like you for your glory till we die and see you face to face. Speak to our hearts, convict us in a good way, and may we encourage one another in these things. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.